Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in, as always, to the show on this Monday morning. The first Monday of May. Welcome into the show on Friday. We got some uh, unfortunate news for uh, anyone watching, following closely the uh, the legal challenges facing the Federation. And that unfortunate news is that at least for this round, um, U.S. soccer has won their opening round against the U.S. women's national team in the uh, the U.S. Women's National Team court case. Uh, they they were uh, successful in winning their summary judgment. Uh, that essentially means that uh, no trial uh, forthcoming uh, based on the current uh, legal arguments before that judge. And shortly after that ruling was released, um, the U.S. Women's National Team uh, released a statement that said, essentially, the fight continues. It is not over, that they will file an appeal and they will continue to push forward with this issue. Uh, there's a lot to get to here at the top of the show about this case, where we are, where we could be going uh, and I also want to to give a little bit of a look back at where we could have been in all of this as well. Um, but uh, one of the things that was uh, immediately, um, you know, known were how the U.S. Women's National Team felt. Uh, both current and former members of the U.S. Women's National Team were very vocal on social media at their displeasure and disagreement over the ruling. One of the U.S. Women's National Team legends, legend, okay, one of the, the 99ers, legend here, uh, Michelle Akers, uh, she said this, this is not over. The time is ripe for a new U.S. soccer to step into their potential. And even though the latest ruling may seem disappointing, U.S. soccer is right now in the impossible position of trying to save themselves in a 360-degree crap storm of poor performance on the men's side. Inept and failing youth programs, multiple lawsuits, COVID-19 and canceled competitions, massive budget cuts, skittish sponsors, and a pissed-off and divided fan base. The one gem they can claim and rally around is the U.S. Women's National Team and potentially the promise of transformation under the new president, Cindy Parlow Cohn. What a fairy tale story it could be for them, ultimately deciding to lead the way globally for equality in women's soccer and integrating both the men's and women's national team programs as equal and viable commodities. Two amazing products under one roof celebrated for their distinct ability, successes, and profitability within their own yet similar markets. Wow. 
And if they don't go that way, even if they win this lawsuit, they are poised to lose bigger. I vote for a win for all. So as Chris Cuomo would say, let's get after it. And I think that is the feeling of so many supporters of this U.S. women's national team, including uh, women's national team members themselves. There is a there is a legal battle that has been won on behalf of U.S. soccer. The war is not over. This fight will continue. The, the current U.S. women's national team has made that very clear. They will not stop. They will not back down. They will continue to press on. And that is the good news. That is a good news for, for uh, a lot of reasons. And I want to get into some of those reasons right now. One of the, the main reasons why this is a good thing in the totality of American soccer is that this conversation needs to continue. It needs to progress and it needs to involve more than just a select few behind closed doors. It needs to continue in the media. It needs to continue in our, in our courtrooms. It needs to continue in the halls of Congress and it needs to continue to make its way even into the White House. This federation is operating in a way that is not in the best interest of every single member. That includes the women's national team. And so the longer this case can can continue in the public eye and the more progress that can be made, the better off we will all be in the long run. There are a lot of things that U.S. soccer is not doing well. Michelle Akers points out quite a few of those. Talking about the men's national team, our youth programs, and that goes beyond national teams. We've talked a lot about that on, uh, that on this show recently, how the, the, the closure, the termination of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy program without anything in its wake. There's nothing coming behind it. No direction, no new program, no guidelines, no no sanctioning process to even begin to create a sense of pathway for families. There's no defined pathway for families, I didn't like the pathway as it was defined by the Development Academy because it was still locking entire states out of the pathway in the system. But you could at least say here was the pathway in these cities, in these states, in these markets. It wasn't successful for the country, but it worked for the chosen few in a few chosen markets. Now all of that is gone. And Michelle Akers is correct. We've had multiple budget cuts. And part of that is 
bad governance, lack of transparency, and that has brought on legal challenges. We have a a member on the board of directors who is making money off of a no-bid contract who has an inordinate amount, like a level that should not be the case of influence in voting power in Don Garber sitting on the board of directors. All of these things are interrelated. The lack of support for the women's national team and for the top leagues and the the women's system of leagues, both professional and amateur in this country, they are being deprived of resources that are going to Major League Soccer owner-operators through that no-bid contract. We take the women's national team, which the records have, have shown has been more popular, more successful, not only on the field, but off of it. And that money is not going into our women's programming. It's going to Major League Soccer and to Don Garber, who, can, who, who controls and influences more than U.S. soccer wants to acknowledge or admit. So the more this conversation can stay in the public eye, the better. That is a good thing. More legal pressure, more public pressure, more pressure from Congress is necessary. It is invited. The scrutiny is long overdue. We have seen also the, the, the sponsors speak up and say, we don't like what we are seeing. Well, if you, if you really dig into the U.S. Soccer Federation, you're going to find there's a lot more you don't like. A lot more that happens that shouldn't be happening. A, a system built on an idea, a philosophy of gatekeepers. U.S. soccer has a mission to make soccer in all of its forms the preeminent sport in America, yet it operates with a system of gatekeepers that keeps cities, clubs, coaches, states locked out of access and opportunity. Now tell me how those two things line up, mission statement and actions. They don't. That's why this case and other cases need to continue. The fight must continue. And I agree with Michelle Akers that Cindy Parlocone, the new president of U.S. soccer, has an opportunity. I don't think she's handled it well. And the reason I don't think she's handled it well is the few things that we have seen to judge her by so far, I don't think she's done a great job. Number one, media availability. No one's going anywhere right now. There's no league play at all. You have plenty of time to make yourself available. Regular teleconferences and press conferences from the Federation should be ongoing. Updating members, updating the media. And she should be on those calls. They're not happening. 
the other area that we've talked about. The termination of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. We don't include the clubs affected by the announcement. We don't talk to the stakeholders. We just make an arbitrary decision and we leave nothing coming behind it. When we look at the few decisions that have been made so far, I would not say I have a lot of confidence that we are heading in the right direction. Now, again, I've said before, the termination of the DA could have been a good thing. It could also be a bad thing. Why? What comes afterwards? The big problem with the DA is that it didn't, it didn't go far enough. It should have been open to every club based on sporting merit. Period. Plain and simple. U.S. soccer could have easily done that. They could have administered the game at that level across the country, and they didn't go far enough. And then when they realized that, look, the way we're currently doing it isn't working, they didn't try to fix it. They just said, forget it. You're on your own. We abdicate yet again our responsibilities, our duties to our members. And we're going to outsource those to our member organizations instead. That is what has happened. And that is Cindy Parlocone's record. But I agree with Michelle Akers. I agree that she can bring about change. She could make some real strides to change things. Learn from these recent and first series of missteps and improve and get better. That's what we all want. And I'm sure that's what Michelle Akers wants as well. She said as much. Lastly, I want to say this. Back in the 2018 presidential election cycle, U.S. soccer members had an opportunity to avoid this entire mess. They had a real opportunity. The men's national team had failed to qualify for the World Cup. You had a president and a head coach of the men's national team who said nothing needs to change. And they were absolutely 1,000% dead wrong. And there was a real opportunity to change things. To bring in new leadership that was not part of the inside. You have Sunil Galati, Carlos Cordero, Cindy Parlocone, all insiders. They've all been in and around the upper levels of U.S. soccer for a very long time. And we are here where we are in the midst of legal turmoil, in the midst of chaos and confusion and uncertainty. All of that could have gone in a different direction in 2018. And it would be a very different reality. Right now, today, had decisions been made differently in 2018, I firmly believe that we would not have the legal troubles that we have right now. I believe that our women's national team 
would have been treated equitably, fairly, and given the dignity and honor and respect that they deserve. I believe that our youth programming would have significantly changed and improved. And our adult amateur and professional arenas would have been addressed appropriately. Instead, we have a situation that we find ourselves in right now with upheaval, uncertainty, chaos, budget shortfalls, legal troubles, and that is not going to end anytime soon. I hope that as we go forward, things change. I hope that people wake up. I hope that the voters realize that in February of 2021, they can choose a new path. If Cindy Parlo Cohn and Will Wilson continue to mess things up and they don't right the ship, we need to choose new leadership. If they do start to fix things and they do start to make the right steps, there is still plenty of things to do. And I hope the members will take that upon themselves, like offering up policy and bylaw proposals and amendments that continue to alter the landscape of the American soccer ecosystem, including governance, transparency, uh, budgeting, how we handle the board of directors. Currently, there is no way to vote out the entire board of directors. That is a massive problem in a national governing body that its membership cannot vote them out. And having that provision in the bylaws is essential as a measure of accountability. Of course, it's not going to be used regularly and at a whim, but it is a necessary thing. And all of this goes back to the fight continues. The fight continues. And as Michelle Aker said, this is not over. I, um, I hope that uh, we see more uh, media covering this and talking about this and looking into this. And we are going to get into this uh, over the course of this week on the show. Uh, coming up after the break, we had an opportunity to speak to uh, Terry Brennan recently and uh, record an interview with him looking at governance, looking at this federation. He's written a series of articles covering U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer as a single entity. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, bring you that interview here coming up just after the break. That's going to get into some of these issues that I was just talking about right here at the top of the show. Uh, but before we do... Um, Ductic Brand is is a company that uh, was founded by players and 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 not just players, but players who want other players to have opportunities. Re- 
conferences tools to make you better as a player or as a coach. And you can check out some of those resources at ductigbrand.com. Again, that's D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. And when you place an order, use promo code DWSHOW and you'll get 10% off of that order at ductigbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. to welcome Terry Brennan into the show. Terry, thanks for uh, joining us uh, today on the show. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, some of your thoughts on where we're at with U.S. soccer, get some of your legal perspective. And um, you you wrote an article um, about uh, MLS's single entity status and looking at antitrust and really just wanted to kind of uh, bring you on the show to kind of talk through some different aspects and observations that you have of where we're at in American soccer. Um, and, and first I really want to kind of get into uh, this aspect of the, the legal landscape um, mm-hmm. with the Federation. They're bleeding millions of dollars per year with all these legal troubles. And uh, it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. Um, and they're, they're, they're kind of, posture or tone has been one that has uh, certainly not given me any confidence uh, that things are being handled uh, in in the best way possible. And I'm curious, from your perspective, looking at where we're at, obviously the big talking point recently has been the women's case. Um, Why, kind of zooming out for a moment, why yeah. why is this organization having so many legal problems in the first place? Well, uh, that's a little bit of the age-old question. When you get sued, is it your fault or is the other person crazy? Um, I think that 
the lawsuits have piled up to such a degree that I think, honestly, the way I see it is they're getting sued because there's a lot of things out there about the way they do business that is leaving them open to attack. So, um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, I like to sometimes link a lot of things back to the market. You don't have a market that kind of channels all of those problems. So people are going to go the legal route when they don't feel that they have a recourse within the normal process that, uh, you know, you can go through outside of court. So there's, there's not a lot of avenues for people uh, to kind of air their grievances and try to make changes within the organization. So, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be plenty of lawsuits in those, those circumstances because, you know, a lot of times the courts are the last resort when you, you feel like you're not getting anywhere with, you know, the opportunities that you have uh, or lack thereof, you know, within the normal process. You know, I, I use this statement a lot when I'm talking to clubs or organizations, businesses, et cetera. You are what you're structured to do. Like you are what you're structured to be. Um, you mentioned recourses and in, in avenues to resolve conflicts or make changes or uh, accountability, what have you. If you were to, you know, look at, um, you know, the the landscape, the ecosystem, the the structure of the federation and this American soccer system, in a proper um, system of feedback loops and in accountability and changes, etc., that would, you know, at least minimize some of the legal challenges that are that are ongoing right now. What would be some things? that we would typically see if it was functioning in a way that was more responsive to change or grievances? Well, I think first of all, um, the, the Federation um, is set up in such a way that you have, uh, you only really have a few parties who can control things. So I think the first thing you would wanna really work on is is the proportional system that they have of voting. When I look at that, I say to myself, well, how are you supposed to create a flexible organization that can change given the, you know, the changing landscape? And so you've got a system set up where people have nominal power, a state association has nominal power, but if they decide on something, they really need to get just about everyone else to go along with them before you're going to get anywhere with it. So I think the proportional system where you have a few parties that have a lot of power and they have a lot of ability to consolidate their votes because they're smaller. Um, I think right there, you can't really make a lot of changes if, if they are, unless they're on board with it. So um, you know, you're not going to anticipate everything right when you start. But, but if you have a more flexible structure and you have things that are, make it easier to change, uh, you can go places. But right now, unfortunately, the only ways you can make changes are if a, few, you know, if a few parties agree with that, because everybody else, they really need to be in lockstep if they're gonna you know, push, those, uh, push through changes that, that are not agreed to by the, the main power brokers. Yeah, we've seen the, the voting, uh, I think, play a large, part in in the in frustration right i mean mm -hmm. the men failed to qualify for the world cup a lot of the american soccer public 
believed, okay, we're going to see some changes come February 2018, that didn't materialize due to the voting structure you're referring to. And, it, and, and as I've attended uh, the AGM meetings in the two years since that presidential election, I have seen uh, some of these state associations get more and more animated, more and more frustrated yeah. as they feel like they don't have an ability to really, um, you know, affect change or, or even hold the board accountable. Um, you know, there's no built-in mechanism to remove this board of directors. That's another area that, that where I see, um, you know, issues in terms of not being able to, um, uh, you know, kind of recall a president or recall or throw out a board or what have you. So, you know, it's, I, I just, I feel like that's an issue as well. Yeah, um, I mean, there isn't a lot of accountability. And, and you, you know, you mentioned the, the AGM after the World Cup. And as you look at the way the organization's set up, you're wondering who that can really sway this election cares that the U.S. didn't make the World Cup, like from a competitive standpoint. Right. You know, I, I, there are probably people who cared about it from a commercial standpoint. But, you know, um, you know, you're making pitches to people, and, and some people probably care, but I think the people who have the most voting power are saying to themselves, or maybe saying aloud, what problem? You know, um, as long as we get Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero in there and we, we get the, the host to World Cup in 2026, what problem? Right. You know, so I, I think that, it, you know, you need to have differing interests in there that have a role, you know, that have an influence. And right now it's, it's just not a lot of different in interests. For sure. And, and, you know, to that point, I mean, like right after uh, the, the Trinidad and Tobago loss for the U S events national team, you had Galati as well as Bruce arena, both come out and say like, you know, it's just a bump in the road. Like, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, and I'm That's like, right. yeah. no changes what? need to be made. I think one of them yeah. said that. Yeah. No yeah. changes need to be made. I'm like, um, have you not read the definition of insanity? Like we got here, right? Because no changes <laughs> right. were made. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know? um, and you know, you get the impression that, that uh, there were a lot of people who didn't want to see Gulati even leave. So, right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, that's another looming piece of this, uh, his involvement um, in the Federation and then, and then just kind of seeing, the environment that was left behind when Carlos Cordero came in, um, the legal challenges were, were not Carlos's making. He inherited the legal challenges. That's right. Where I look at Carlos uh, and judge his tenure is to me, every problem is a leadership problem. It can always be solved with better leadership. We can find a way to fix or solve or whatever. That's where I look at Carlos and go, that's where you messed up. It wasn't that you can't, you, you knew because you were vice president. So it's not like he, he didn't know what he was stepping into. Right. Where I, I judge his tenure is he didn't, he didn't fix it quick enough uh, or, or at all in some cases. And, and then we get to the, you know, what ultimately led to his ouster uh, which was the the public pressure from sponsors and those in the media who basically just got tired of 
you know, looking at these legal arguments that had been out, you know, quite frankly, they'd been out for a while. And then, and, and that's why, uh, you know, whenever he's acting shocked, like he didn't have any idea, I'm sitting there going like, you know, this, this wasn't a 24 hour turnaround. Like you had been aware of the legal tactics and strategy for a while. And, you know, ultimately he's gone and now we're in a new, new landscape and, and, and it's off to a rocky start <laughs> with the, with the termination of the DA. Uh, I, yeah. Which you wonder how well thought out that was with new people coming aboard. Welcome back into the show. We've got Terry Brennan again with us. Uh, new location. I think by the end of this interview, we're going to, we're going to see every room in the house, but uh, uh, we're happy to, to, to have some flexibility and, and uh, get you through the interview. Uh, Very topical. It's, it's pandemic, uh, pandemic friendly show, right? Absolutely. You, know, you got to move around because different arrangements. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. It's part of it, my man. But uh, um, we, we were talking uh, before the break about, you know, the, the Federation and its legal strategies and how ultimately that affected uh, Carlos Cordero and his resignation. Now we have a new administration and uh, the termination of the DA uh, is now uh, been announced. And the aftermath, we see another what I view as an abdication of leadership you know, in, in terms of providing what comes next. Um, mm -hmm. It's one thing to say this is over, how we get to that conclusion and then what comes after that conclusion is, is also part of the leadership picture. And in the very first, uh, you know, comments you, you were making about, um, you know, the Federation and, and paths to air grievances, this is another area where I think, there's some issues. You're seeing clubs scramble all over the country, uh, trying to figure out this landscape. Um, there was a not a great pathway, but there was a a forced pathway through Major League Soccer and and some other uh, pay-to-play youth clubs that were kind of acting as conduits to the youth national team. Now that's all kind of been blown up and it's all up in the air. You know, when you look when you look at the organization. Um, and, and, you know, trying to find ways to put into its documents, whether it's the bylaws or policies, better governance, um, yeah. ways to air grievances, transparency, et cetera. What would be some suggestions you would have to improve the Federation to, to, you know, prevent or, or try to prevent these types of errors in the future? Well, I think voices that you could give to people, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll ask a broad sort of philosophical question, like, what is U.S. soccer? I mean, is U.S. soccer just, you know, the narrow little band that we see, uh, you know, with MLS and the national teams and, and you know, now the NWSL and, and a few of those other spots? Or is it, you know, a broad, broad collection of a lot of different types of entities, people, you know, players, coaches, clubs. Um, I think one thing you can do is really expand the, uh, you know, the footprint of clubs. Right now, there's no, there's no clubs in the bylaws, really. There, there's, it's not a definition. A club can't become a member. 
um, when you when you give clubs more of a voice, I think these are the the organizations that are really dealing the most with people. And there's a lot of clubs in the United States. It's, it's not just the ones that we call clubs at the highest level. I mean, they're all over. I mean, you look around, most towns have clubs, soccer clubs. So I think the more that you, you give those, you know, those entities voices and allow them to kind of exercise more power, um, you do have kind of a conduit, you know, higher up to the, you know, to the higher up uh, leadership. So I think those are, you know, that's one way you could do it. And I think the other thing is, you know, you could have licensings for professional clubs. Clubs could exist outside of leagues. Um, and and that could uh, do a lot to drown out some of the power or, or water down some of the power that that just a few people have by being able to run the professional council. So, um, you know, the more democratic you make the system, the better off uh, you're going to be with people being able to kind of, uh, you know, air those grievances that they have or, or to affect some change. And it's going to make people on the board beholden to a broader swath of interests. And uh, in that way, they're going to, you know, maybe be a little bit more cognizant of what, what people want. Right. Now, I want to get to your article here um, that, that you, you wrote in 2017 and, mm-hmm. and getting into MLS as single entity and, their, and its relationship with a- antitrust law. Um, sure. When you did your kind of look at Major League Soccer as, as a single entity, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, miseducation, misconception, et cetera, about how MLS is structured and in how it operates versus uh, you know, what people assume a soccer club is, yes. uh, right? And so um, the first kind of distinction here of a single entity um, it, from a definition standpoint, could you provide the way MLS is legally structured as a single entity versus what you would typically see and let's say the Premier League with, you know, the likes of Liverpool, Manchester City, et cetera, um, in, in, a, in a league versus Major League Soccer as a single entity. Could you, could you give that definition um, that would kind of explain a little bit of the difference in the two? Yeah, it, it, this is kind of, and I'll expand on this, but kind of the simple way to describe it is in a single entity, uh, the league creates the teams and in, in a in a different kind of system like say you mentioned the Premier League uh, the clubs create the league so you know it's a group of clubs getting essentially I mean I know it's it's been a while since since they actually made this decision but but a bunch of clubs getting together and deciding they're going to play each other whereas it, MLS it flows the opposite direction where you have uh, the league is deciding whether a, a team is going to exist or not um, so uh, that would be kind of the colloquial way to say it. Um, from a from a, a legal perspective, I mean, MLS is an LLC, and you know the investors in the LLC pay in uh, for the right to own or operate a team. So uh, you know it's branched off a lot from that, and and, and I have to confess, uh, I don't know all of the legal arrangements of MLS because they don't have a lot of that out there. 
So I, I don't know the specific agreements that are going back and forth, but essentially, well, not essentially, MLS is an LLC and, and it has, uh, you know, kind of uh, investors in that LLC and members of that LLC. And those members can operate teams and they share in a significant part of the you know, common revenue. Uh, MLS to some degree owns uh, player, player contracts. There's some exceptions to that. Um, you know, they, I think that, you know, the owners can keep their gate receipts. Um, they can keep hundred percent of the sale from a homegrown player. Um, I, they fund their own academies in large part. So, uh, you know, there's elements of autonomy to it, but it's all kind of stringing off of that common structure. And so as you were looking at MLS, let's call it 1.0 back before mm -hmm. they reached a level of expansion, which I think is in large part due to their subsidies from the Federation with their no bid contract through soccer United marketing. Um, but before that contract, they were, they were heading for extinction. It was not working. Uh, it was, it, the, the league was contracting. The idea had failed essentially uh, as a, as a business, as a soccer league, it had failed um, and was going under until the creation of soccer United marketing, uh, which is also owned by the same owner operators of MLS. Um, That's right. Right. So it's a, it's another LLC. Yeah. They own, um, you know, a share in each, uh, our members in each LLC, but in terms of the single entity, uh, for, for the purposes of filing the single entity and the purposes of your article in examining that single entity yeah. status and, and the Sherman antitrust laws, uh, is it, uh, by definition that, um, if you were to swap out the letters MLS for McDonald's, it would essentially be like you have 20, um, you know, investor operators into McDonald's, you know, USA LLC, and each investor operator gets to operate, you know, the McDonald's in Atlanta, the McDonald's in Chicago, right. et cetera. Um, versus what you see in what you laid out in terms of independent clubs who form an association of clubs, i.e. in a league, for competitive purposes. Um, so by definition, doesn't MLS operate to get around the antitrust piece that on, at least on paper they have some level of these teams are owned by MLS, and then we give a little bit of deference to uh, the individual investor operators for what they would, I guess, deem local operations uh, with their specific location versus in almost a kind of a franchise type scenario that, you know, where McDonald's is still owning the 20 branches right. or locations, but uh, each, each, local operator is, you know, can decide what, what color to paint their building and in different, you know, things that they get yes, to do. Right. Right. Am I kind of, uh, saying that correctly in, in, following kind of your, your, your stream of logic there in the article? Um, yes, I think at a, yeah, at a general level. Yes. I think what you're dealing with is it's not quite as cut and dry as you, you know, you're, uh, as MLS is a, a McDonald's, is McDonald's with its, you know, various McDonald's stores throughout the country. Um, the way the courts have 
gradually come to it is that it's a it's a totality of the circumstances test. So you're going to look at it and look at all of the circumstances. So the most obvious instance of where a, something would be a single entity would be the example you gave of McDonald's, where you have McDonald's LLC and you just have a bunch of franchises out there. Well, that's that's not uh, uh, you know that's not a conspiracy. You can't conspire within your your particular well within one entity. Um, MLS is a little bit more of a hybrid, and, and it, it kind of always has been, in that they're trying to uh, at least distinguish some level of autonomy with the various teams because they have different names, and I think they, to a degree, want the public to not, they want to be a single entity, but don't necessarily want the public to look at them that way. Um, so uh, MLS is a little bit more of a hybrid, but but you're you're on the right track that um, you know the Sherman antitrust law says at least at the beginning uh, you know it is a conspiracy uh, to restrain trade well you can't be a conspiracy within yourself it requires multiple actors so MLS definitely wants to preserve that defense to say well you can't even get to the rest of the antitrust law uh, to determine if we violate it or not because by definition, we could, we can't have formed a conspiracy because there is only one actor, MLS. Um, that is, uh, you know, courts have kind of chipped away at that, and MLS, as they attempt to expand their the freedom that they give the individual teams, they've kind of whittled down their single entity defense. So it hasn't been challenged in a long time. It would be interesting to see. Uh, if it were challenged, what a court might say about that defense, because, uh, you know, in 2000, the, you know, I think it was the first circuit court of appeals cast some, some doubt on that ruled for MLS on different grounds, but cast some doubt on whether MLS was a single entity even then. And I think anyone who's been following it would say that, uh, you know, MLS is the, the level of freedom they've started to give the individual teams has expanded exponentially since then. So looking, looking at MLS and, and where they are now, uh, what, what is the major, for, from their perspective, you know, if you're an investor operator in the MLS LLC uh, situation, what is the legal benefit uh, for them what, to stay single entity? Why would they, Don Garber's even made some comments recently like, that's kind of the holy grail. We're not gonna, we're not going to touch that. Like we, and I get it from his perspective. He he makes multiple millions of dollars per year off the current system. Why would he want to change it? Right. But the investor operators involved in MLS, why would they want to to remain a single entity? Like, what protections is that giving them, and and what advantages are they trying to seek through that legal vehicle? Yeah, well, um, to back up just a step, it, for an antitrust claim, there, there's kind of two components. And one is this threshold question of whether there is, it, well, put it this way, uh, uh, at a general level, an antitrust violation is where parties engage in a conspiracy to restrain trade. So you can look at that in two parts. The first is whether you have a conspiracy. And that's where the single entity defense comes in. Now, if you don't have a conspiracy, you don't need to get to the other part, which is whether you've restrained trade. Now, restraining trade, uh, 
can be a much more involved, multifaceted, uh, you know, determination. And it involves far more judgment calls. There's, there's a lot more nuance to it than a consp the conspiracy part. So I think if you're looking at it from a legal perspective, it's, you know, it's like the, uh, you know, if you, if you are in a single entity, let's, let's imagine that behind the, that the, 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 uh, the single entity is the, the gate to hell, right? And you, uh, you want to keep that gate closed so that you don't have to get into hell, which is to determine whether you've restrained trade. So you can cut off the process right away and say, look, uh, you know, we don't even have to get into all the nuance of what exactly we're doing to restrain trade and spend what would be a lot of money in legal fees uh, because we can just cut this off right now. We are not a single entity. Uh, we can resolve this right, or we are a single entity. We're not a conspiracy. We can resolve this right away on a motion to dismiss and, and, and move on. Now, the, so, the, the, know, the cuts off the process. Right. So the restraint of trade, how, how does that translate to the, to the every man, every woman understanding uh, as, it as, it, as it relates to the sport of soccer? Is that player salaries? Is that wages being paid? Is that, you know, what, what are those factors that would be up for consideration in terms of restraint of trade? It can be a few different things. So it can, it can actually be either one or both of those things. Um, it's a tricky situation in the United States because, well, in U.S. soccer, I should say, because uh, the most effective antitrust cases, at least so I'm told, I've never actually processed, you know, I've never actually tried one, but the most effective antitrust cases are, are the ones that, you know, show a substantial amount of consumer harm. Restraint on the labor market is typically not as effective of a case. So both can be restraints on trade, but when you're looking at MLS, and you're looking at U.S. soccer, even if you were to win that, um, you know, the, the conspiracy portion, the restraint on trade is a little bit trickier. Um, there's some restraints on the labor market, that's true, um, and that can technically be an antitrust violation. But, uh, you know, if you're looking at the consumer arm, that's a little bit more intangible and a little bit more difficult to, to kind of show. Um, you know, so it's... You can't necessarily show real dollars that are that are affecting the consumer by the the restraints on trade that are in effect in MLS. So, would if you were to grasp at straws here, trying to find examples of what restraint on trade would be on a con, on a consumer side, would that be like ticket prices, um, you know, merchandise pricing, et cetera? Would that be an area that you would look at uh, affecting the consumer? That could affect the consumer, yes. Um, but I don't, I don't know that MLS is, is using the, uh, you know, the kind of cartel to drive up prices. So the idea is, is you eliminate competition or the, the danger is that you, any group of firms in a particular industry eliminates competition and then they can just drive up the prices everywhere and that's going to hurt the consumer. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that, that MLS is specifically engaged in that kind of consumer harm. I think it's more, uh, it's more fan harm. So 
In terms of looking at uh, the, the situation with MLS, they're really not a lone actor here. I mean, the, yeah, they have the single entity status, but, um, you know, both leagues that they have propped up uh, have been single entity leagues. The NWSL is the most recent uh, attempt at this uh, with really kind of an MLS 1.0 blueprint. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then kind of now, obviously, MLS and, and its – current form um but u.s soccer is involved with uh you know major league soccer and they're 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 literally in business together with soccer united marketing um how problematic is it from a governance standpoint to have the ceo of the uh soccer united marketing and commissioner of major league soccer who has a no-bid contract with United States Soccer Federation to be on the board with so much voting power um, of, a, of the nonprofit body that's literally giving, giving you the, the uh, funding on one side and the sanctioning uh, power on the other side in terms of divisional status uh, to prop up your entire business. How, if, you're, if you're looking at this from a governance standpoint, how wise is that to have that type of individual um, with clear conflicts of interest uh, to be having so much power within the U S soccer board and the U S soccer federation uh, in general. Well, that's partially the argument that the NASL is making in their antitrust case is that the conspiracy is not MLS teams that are doing this. The conspiracy is in fact, MLS, some, you know, Soccer United Marketing uh, and the Federation who are conspiring uh, to restrain the NASL in in ways that you mentioned, many of the ways you mentioned, with the voting power, with the professional league standards, with the relationship between Soccer United Marketing and, you know, well, the U.S. Soccer and MLS. Right. So, um, you know, when you're looking at it from that perspective, that is the kind of uh, the conspiracy that they uh, that they've articulated. Um, I think that uh, from a governance standpoint, you know, I, I, I think to ask the question is to know the answer, right? I think that, that the, the conflict of interest is, is a problem. Um, I think you can't, uh, you know, all of those things put together, I think, make it very difficult for any other actors to, to get going because the competitive interests of the people who are running things right now are not aligned with that. I shouldn't say the competitive interest, the business interests of the people who are aligned with that, you know, are not aligned with that. So, you know, if you, even if you want to start a rogue league and try to get to the division one uh, sanction, theoretically you could do it, but uh, you have a lot of powerful people who, who don't have an interest in that. And, and as you pointed out, that's part of the NASL uh, court case. That is ongoing. One of the cases that is bleeding uh, U.S. soccer of millions of dollars in legal fees, um, which, you know, like I said, is a little, you know, I look at it as a little self-inflicted uh, wounds, et cetera. Um, when, when you look at uh, the overview of the Federation, its relationship with Major League Soccer and the soccer landscape in general, um, in, in, in your article 
about the antitrust piece with, with single entity and major league soccer, taking all of that into account, what would be the best path forward for a major league soccer um, to really be able to capitalize on the American market, uh, be beneficial for the fans, and as well beneficial for the players and the ecosystem in general? Well, <laughs> um, it's difficult to answer because I think based on MLS interests um, and the way they've seemed to articulate those interests, I don't know that they're doing anything, anything wrong. I, you know, I think they're pursuing their interests in a pretty effective way. And, you know, I see them expanding power by, you know, expansion. I mean, everyone's got their own take on, on why MLS expanding but there are a lot of reasons but i think one is that you kind of squelch those you know potential buyers in in other areas of teams that could get popular and could be an alternative domestically to mls so you know you co-opt sacramento republic who's you know drawing a lot of fans um so i think that they're from an mls perspective i think that you know, they do have a problem that they're not drawing a huge share of the domestic market. But at the same time, um, I think their view may be that, hey, you know, business is still gradually getting better uh, without having to, to take that huge share. And the more we can kind of expand control, uh, the better off we'll be. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if, if they have the whole domestic market outside of, you know, fans, Fans like us who are getting up early in the morning to watch the games in, in Europe, not right now. Right. Um, I, I think that uh, it, you know, I, I think that they'll they'll be okay with that because I think you get the impression they're very comfortable with the way things are going from a business perspective, and the things they're really fighting are are changes in that, any any kind of drastic changes in that. Yeah, I, I agree. I have I have long said you're not dealing with stupid people when you're looking at major right. league soccer and, and even those who have, who have been at the, the top levels of us soccer, they've been playing check chess while the rest of the country has been asleep playing checkers. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in, in order to, to see those things change, I think legal uh, tactics are, are definitely at play. That's part of it. Um, obviously we've discussed today some governance issues that need right. to, to, to go into effect to make some changes. And I think also, you're going to have to just see, um, you know, some clubs and communities and um, ownership or prospective ownership groups that are going to have to be brave and, uh, and, and yes. work from all those angles as well. So, Terry, I appreciate your time uh, and sure. uh, stay safe during this uh, uh, pandemic and, and, you know, would love to have you back on uh, again soon to kind of dig into some more of these legal issues as well in, in the landscape. Uh, we, di we didn't even sure. touch one of the hot, hot button topics. It's part of all of this as well as how we handle our youth players with uh, training compensation, solidarity payments. That's, right. That's certainly a topic I'd love to get uh, into with you next time on the show. So thanks for, uh, great. yeah, man. Thank, thanks for doing this. And so we appreciate it. And, uh, like I said, uh, uh, we'll have you have you back on the show soon. All right, I'd love to be here. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. You stay safe too, and uh, 
hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. to thank terry brennan for coming on the show uh this was uh a pleasure to to pick his brain and, and really get to hear from him his thoughts on governance structure major league soccer u.s soccer etc and uh really appreciated uh, his time uh doing that interview and talking through those issues i just want to leave us with uh with this one uh thought and that is if you are looking at this situation with our u.s women's national team and celebrating a victory uh in this opening round from u.s soccer shame on you this is not a moment to celebrate this is a moment where U.S. soccer should still do the right thing and come to the women's national team and work out a deal that ensures equality and and equal treatment uh, that goes beyond equal pay of our women's and men's national teams. And I think it's time that the men's national team, as well as the women's national team, do this together. Come together, do this as one, treat each other with dignity and respect set an example for all the boys and girls out there and put u.s soccer to the test make them come to the table and treat both of you in the right way thanks for watching the show we'll see everyone again tomorrow